Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. That was a, that was a hard question Russ asked you. Are you excited about mass incarceration? So I appreciate your hesitancy. Um, so good morning, everyone. I'm, I'm really excited and humbled to have been asked to um, speak about mass incarceration this morning. Um, and why don't we pray and then we'll kind of jump into it. Father God, I just want to begin by thanking you. Thanking you for putting us all in this place this morning to be able to hear you speak to us um, and through us, Lord. I just pray that as we, as we go through talking about mass incarceration and discussing how we go from retribution to reconciliation, Lord, that you would have us be a people of open hearts and open ears, Lord, and that you would speak to us in the ways that we can bring Jubilee here to this world. We love you. We thank you. And uh, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Um, so we are going to be using scripture today. But I think it's important for us to kind of orient ourselves to begin. Um, and so in talking about mass incarceration, what we're talking about is the systemic imprisoning of a particular population in large numbers. Um, and here in America, it really dates back to the Emancipation Proclamation, which if you're unfamiliar, and I hope you're not, that was the moment that the people here in America, black people who were slaves, were freed under the law. And from the moment that happened, there was a series of laws that came into play at that point that tried to tamp down on that newly earned freedom. They were called black codes. Um, and they were enacted essentially to make sure that there could still be a modicum of control over this new population of people who had just gained their freedom. And they included things like vagrancy laws. Um, and vagrancy laws essentially allowed local authorities to be able to arrest the newly freed people or former slaves for doing things like walking around and looking for work or for trying to find displaced members of their families. And so codes like this, um, from the moment that they were enacted, became one of the main vehicles through which people became incarcerated, especially people of color. Um, and you can kind of find what was happening was that through this incarceration, through vagrancy laws, there became this involuntary labor in prisons. Um, and you can sort of see this persistence of how laws impact different people um, in the state and I, in the country. And I think it's expanded broadly um, to people of color and disproportionately poor people as well, um, or people who are living in poverty-stricken communities. Um, so to kind of put numbers behind this, because I think that's important, um, according to the Equal Justice Initiative, which is an amazing nonprofit organization that's committed to um, ending mass incarceration and excessive punishment um, in the United States and challenging racial and economic injustice, as well as kind of protecting basic human rights here in American society, um, it basically found that the United States incarcerates more of its citizens than any other nation in the world. So I was looking online and I was like, oh, I wonder if I can find a graphic for this. And Ben and Jerry's had a graphic for this. <laughs> right. 
Ben and Jerry's is dope. I mean, the ice cream is delicious, but also they really care about things. Um, and so I wasn't surprised, but the United States has 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's incarcerated prisoners, which is kind of crazy. Um, and so the jail and prison population in America has increased from less than 200,000 back in 1972 to 2.2 million people incarcerated today, making the number of folks incarcerated more populous than certain cities here in the United States. So we have more people in prison than we have in San Diego. Okay, um, just to kind of give you a sense. And today, nearly seven million people in this country in total are incarcerated or on probation or on parole. Um, so there are a lot of people who are being impacted by the criminal justice system. Um, and so I was reading this amazing book in preparation for today um, called Rethinking Incarceration by Dominique Gilliard. I'm gonna say it as Gilliard because I believe that's what it is. Um, it's an amazing book. If you haven't heard of it, look it up. If you haven't read it, read it. Um, but basically, he highlights that it's predicted that one in three black men will spend time behind bars in their lifetime, and one in six Hispanic or Latino men will spend time behind bars. And that's in comparison to about one in 17 or 18 white men. Um, and if you look at that in comparison to the population of black people or non-white people to people of color, right, it's a pretty big disparity. Also, women are the fastest growing population in the prison system. And about 80% of the women who are incarcerated are mothers. Um, additionally, in 13 states, there's no minimum age for prosecuting children. And so what happens is we have had eight-year-olds who have been tried as adults, convicted as adults, and in many cases sentenced as adults and put into adult prisons, which I'm sure you can understand leads to a whole host of really scary things that can happen to them while they are incarcerated. So just to kind of give people a framework, where are all these people coming from? How are they ending up in the criminal justice system? There are several pipelines, five of them, I think, um, are the ones I'm gonna highlight. So the war on drugs, I'm sure that's not an uncommon phrase, but that is one of the most known pipelines to incarceration. Um, and I mention it not because I don't think people know it, but I mention it because it has since come out, right, by an aide of President, then President Nixon, that the war on drugs was just a political ploy, right? It wasn't something that was built on facts. It was a way to tamp down anti-war hippies um, and black people who wanted their civil rights by attaching them to marijuana and heroin, respectively. Um, and that was used to incarcerate them. Um, and so that's one of the pipelines to mass incarceration. The next one is one that I deeply care about personally because of the work I do, um, but the school to prison pipeline is funneling young people into prison. Um, black people especially um, are being funneled into the criminal justice system through mandated suspensions and zero tolerance policies that um, punish certain behaviors and you know infractions as simple as uniform code violations can result in suspensions and zero tolerance. Um, and so that's just one part of the picture because what's also happening is we see that there are police officers in schools. They're called safety officers or resource officers, right? But they work for the police department and they are stationed in schools. And the interesting thing about that is in a school that is at least 50% or more black, you're absolutely gonna have a school resource officer. 
The less black the school, the less likely that you're gonna have a police officer present in the school. Um, and what's happening is the safety resource officers in the schools are taking the place of administrators in doling out discipline, okay? Um, and so, you know, I see this when I go out to schools to recruit for work. I've gone into schools and I attended a high school, if I'm being frank, where I had to walk through a metal detector, I had to put my bag through a bag scanner, right? And the, my hallways were patrolled by police officers. Um, and so this is not an uncommon reality. Um, but I bring it up because when you think about mass incarceration, what ends up happening is that black and Latinx students are representing about 90% of the arrests and summonses in schools, according to the New York Civil Liberties Union. Um, and 46% of the total suspensions that happened just last year were issued to black students, although they only make up 26% of the school system. And so I know sometimes people hear that and they, you know, maybe in the back of their mind think, well, that can't just be happening for no reason. And part of what we're gonna do today is try to challenge some of that. Um, so it should be noted that while um, black and, and non-black students, especially white students, are sent to disciplinary, you know, to the principal's office or for other spaces for discipline at similar rates, it's students of color who are ending up with punishment and the harsher punishments. Um, students who are suspended are more likely to drop out of high school and they're more likely to end up in jail. And so it was really important to me to bring up this pipeline because it is connected, I think, to the problem we're having with mass incarceration. So the other one that I wanted to bring up because it's very apparent in today's world is immigration. So there are about 85,000 people confined to prisons for immigration reasons. And I want to be clear, they're confined for immigration reasons. They haven't been tagged because they committed a crime, right? Because that, they, that would just be counted as being incarcerated for committing a crime. And then there's that secondary thing of an immigration issue. I'm talking about folks who are just incarcerated for immigration issues, 85,000. And that includes about 13,000 children many of whom, as we know, unfortunately, have been separated from their families. So the two less common things that come up when it comes to mass incarceration are the deinstitutionalization of mental health, which is a big thing. If you close the mental health hospitals, then people who have mental health issues can get in trouble on the streets and then they end up incarcerated as opposed to getting the mental health help that they need. And they account for about 90,000 people who are currently incarcerated. And and they are bracketed under um, a legal concept called incompetent to stand trial. So they don't even understand the charges against them, but they're in jail. Um, and then the last one is the privatization of, of prisons, which I know, you know, is kind of like a buzzword with the election coming up and everything. But it is real in that counties and cities are having private prisons come in and could potentially face facial facial, financial consequences if they are not meeting a particular bed quota. So essentially the private prisons are saying, we won't fine you or charge you as long as you keep X you know, thousand beds full. And so it incentivizes the arresting of people even if it's not necessarily warranted, okay? So now that we got all that sad stuff out of the way, um, you may be wondering why we're talking about this topic. You know, what could the gospel have to say about mass incarceration? And, and we're gonna find out. So the scripture I wanna use today is John chapter eight, verses one through 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to it and we'll read through it together. 
So I'm going to be reading from the Amplified Version. I really enjoy the Amplified Version, uh, but the message is the same. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came back into the temple or the court, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began teaching them. Now the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. They made her stand in the center of the court, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman to death. So what do you say do to her? What is your sentence? They said this to test him, hoping that they would have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and began writing on the ground with his finger. However, when they persisted in questioning him, he straightened up and said, He who is without any sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and started writing on the ground. They listened to his reply, and they began to go out one by one, starting with the oldest ones, until he was left alone with the woman standing there before him in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She answered, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. So I had to, as I was kind of preparing and going through this scripture, I had to address one thing first so that I wouldn't get hung up on it, and I'm going to address it with you all in case anyone else is thinking it. This woman was brought to Jesus for adultery, right? Clearly there was a man involved because it was adultery, but only the woman was brought before Jesus. That bothered me. If it bothers you, then we'll deal with the patriarchy on another day, okay? <laughs> cool. <laughs> I was like, really? Just going to bring the lady? Okay. So throughout Russ's teachings, we have seen that the Pharisees and others kind of pose these questions to Jesus to test him, right? They want to figure out how far they can go, what exactly is required of them, whether or not they can ruffle his feathers, um, and not really learn from his teachings or be his followers, but to kind of call him and what he's saying into question. Um, it was always about defeating him, right? Kind of getting him to stumble, and it was no different here. Right? It was absolutely no different here. So these scribes and these Pharisees, they bring Jesus to the woman who's alleged to have been caught in the act of adultery. Right? And they say to him, don't forget, the law of Moses says that she's to be stoned, sentenced to death for her transgression. Um, and they say to Jesus, so what will be your sentence? Now, punishment is not a foreign concept. Right? If we think about the Bible, um, we can see in the Old Testament that punishment was a thing. Deuteronomy 19.21 says, You show no pity for the guilty. Um, it, your rule should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. It was like, you do, then we do. You know, you will be punished. Um, and we see that in our own sort of criminal justice system today. It's very, it's very much about retribution, right? Um, and so... There's this idea that you will get held accountable for your actions, right, in equal strength. We see it with financial crimes all the time. You, do, you steal money, sometimes they make you pay it back. You take a life, well, maybe we'll sentence you to death, right, or we'll essentially end your life by sentencing you to life in prison without parole. Um, and so this wasn't, this wasn't a foreign concept, this idea that the woman was supposed to be punished. This was not uncommon. 
But then Jesus does something that I think if I were a Pharisee, I'd be like, really, Jesus? He doesn't even respond at first, right? He just stoops down on the ground and he starts drawing in the sand. And there's like all these theories out here about what he was doing. Like maybe he was writing down the sins of the people there or writing down their names or like there are a bunch of theories, but it just reminded me of something that like a teenager or a toddler would do, right? You go to them with a question. I do this all the time at work. I go with a question. So, so what happened? Why didn't you debate? And they'll like ignore you, not pay attention. Maybe do something else, right? Um, and so Jesus sort of does this to the Pharisees, and they, but they are persistent, right? They keep asking him, what do you say we do, Lord? What are we supposed to do, Jesus? And then he says to them very simply, he who is without any sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And so they kind of just listen. And it seems like they think for a minute and then slowly one by one, starting with the oldest ones, which is important, and I'll tell you why in a second, they start to walk away. They start to walk away. Until Jesus is there by himself with the woman, and he says, wait, what, nobody condemned you? And she's like, no. And he says, well, neither do I. Go, but don't sin anymore. Okay? So Jesus said to them, ye who is without blemish, feel free to punish her. He didn't negate the wrongdoing of the woman, Right? We want to be clear about that. He didn't negate the wrong, wrongdoing of the woman. Rather, what he did, as he's done on many occasions, as we've seen throughout this sermon series, is he set the standard for how he wanted his followers to respond. So the Pharisees kind of come up to him with the woman, and they're kind of situated something like this, right? It's like Pharisees are up here, and the woman is kind of down here. Right? And in that simple question, ye who is without sin, feel free to throw that first stone. In that statement, Jesus does this. Say there's a pedestal here. He kicks that pedestal from beneath them, and they end up right here with the woman. And I think that this is really, really important. Because in that moment, in that simple phrase, what God required of them was for them to reflect on their own shortcomings and for them to use that as a, manage, as a measurement to sort of think about what's the appropriate punishment in this minute, right? He took away the otherness from that woman. She was no longer separate from them. She was no longer different from them. She was no longer less worthy of them. In that moment, they became equals, equally falling short in the eyes of Christ. I think that's the framework through which we're supposed to question mass incarceration and imagine and work towards an alternative. Again, to be clear, that woman was not off the hook, right? He gave her very, very clear directives. More clear, I think, than he might have given the Pharisees and the scribes. So I think the question that we become left to ponder, kind of knowing what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, what it essentially did in that moment is, what it looks like for us, practically, to be people of the cross, to be people of jubilee in the structures of mass incarceration. So I think it's a two-part process, and I think that two-part process was very well mirrored in the scripture that we're using today, in that it involves both a changing of our mind and an adjustment of our actions. Um, 
because Jesus, without outright denouncing the law of Moses, really presented the scribes and Pharisees with a condition within which they were free to act, right? He forced them to have an alternative thought about the woman that was brought to him and allowed them to then say, okay, now I'm gonna do this because I have this different understanding of who this woman was. Although he simply said, he who is without sin may cast the first stone. It was that saying, I think, that reoriented the scribe's mind to a simple truth. And I think it's a truth that's really crucial um, to all of us as we're confronted with the structures of mass incarceration. Um, and so as a people of Jubilee, I think that truth was, wait a minute, how can you judge her in this moment? Let me do that. It was the simple allowance by God to be able to cast the first stone if you're without sin that forces us to think about ourselves through a different set of lenses, right? It was almost like he took a picture of, of the Pharisees and said, okay, explain to me how you are different from her. I think God is forcing us to do the same thing. To see a portrait of ourselves and the alleged criminal or the incarcerated, both as the recipients of God's grace, of God's unmerited, unearned, and frankly, undeserved grace. I think we're called not only to see ourselves in that moment, but more importantly, to see God and to see his goodness and his love and how that affects people who have been affected by mass incarceration. We know from Genesis that we were all created in the image of God. And I think within certain contexts, it's easy for us to forget that. Genesis 1.27 tells us God so created mankind in his own image, mankind. There's no, there's no asterisk for a note below right? It says mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And I think in the context of mass incarceration and our understanding of everyone being made in the image of God, policies and behaviors that go against that should be called into question. Just as Jesus's statement made the scribes and Pharisees pause and seemingly think, I believe Christ has called us to do the same, to reflect on our own shortcomings before we cast aside our neighbor. So this was tough for me, right? And I can explain why in a second. But I think because as different as we think we are, Brian Stevenson, who is the director of the Equal Justice Initiative, which I mentioned earlier, and the writer of a book called Just Mercy, which is also amazing. If you haven't read it, please read it. He says something really poignant. He says, we are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. I couldn't pretend that his, and this, he's referring to a man who his organization was trying to represent. I couldn't pretend that his struggle was disconnected from my own. The ways in which I have been hurt and have hurt others are different from the ways he suffered and causes suffering, but our shared brokenness connected us. And so when I read that, to me, it seemed like this whole thing is a matter of degree, right? 
And I have to admit that as someone who has been the victim of crime, I had to ponder this lesson kind of over and over, right? Especially if there's something that particularly triggers me and it causes, and I get, you know, I remember the hurt that I experienced and the residual like mental and emotional, emotional stuff that goes with being the victim of crime. I have to actively remember God's grace and remember that his grace is not only for me who was hurt, but also for those who may have hurt me as well. And so as we're confronted with the structures of mass incarceration, I think as individuals, we're called to remember the condition of brokenness within us all. And, to do, and then from that, from that framework, to do justice and to love mercy. Brian Stevenson's posed a really, a really eye-opening question and it's more so related to criminal justice, but he said, the death penalty is not about whether people deserve to die for the crimes they commit. The real question of capital punishment in this country is, do we deserve to kill? And when he said that, I thought, thinking about your brokenness, right? Thinking about someone else being made in the image of God and whether or not, whether or not us in that moment, we are called to make that decision. So what does it mean then to do justice and love mercy, right? The world tells us, follow that old rule, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? You get what you deserve. If you're caught in the hallway when you're supposed to be in class and the school resource officer takes you to the office and you get upset and you end up getting arrested for disorderly conduct, that's on you. You were supposed to be in class, right? That if you attempt to cross our borders, even if you're escaping extreme poverty or domestic abuse or gang violence, you didn't do it according to the law and so you deserve to be held in a detention center. Right? But if we're all connected through this shared condition of brokenness, and we're all recipients of this unmerited grace, then what does the reimagined alternative look like and require us to do? So Jesus said in Matthew, um, in chapter 25, uh, verses 34 through 40, if people are following along, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are prepared, for you, uh, pardon me, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And so I think based on that, based on Jesus' words, if we were to reimagine this alternative, what it requires of us is several things, one of which is proximity. And I think proximity is a really undervalued concept, right? I encourage everyone, when you think about mass incarceration, its impacts, who it impacts, I encourage you in both a figurative sense and a literal sense to get proximate, to get proximate. 
figuratively by making the needs of the incarcerated your needs, and literally by spending time with the folks who are impacted by this condition, those who are behind bars and the families who are suffering those secondary consequences of it. So Dominique Gilliard reminds us that we must not lose sight of the fact that justice is ultimately manifested in the restoration of righteousness within relationships, not in the pain inflicted or the time served behind bars because of punishment. And that biblical justice is rooted in the rectification of relationships and not in isolation or punishment. Our understanding of ourselves as being saved by grace allows us to be reconciled with God. And that reconciliation, the fact that our brokenness hasn't separated us from Christ, should propel us to be reconciled with one another. Like what happened with the Pharisees, we're called to remove that separation from ourselves and those who are incarcerated or impacted by incarceration and to show mercy towards their condition. And so in kind of thinking about this, I thought, well, how do we get proximate? What are some actual tangible things that maybe God might be calling us to do? If we are all made in the image of God and what we do for the least of these we are doing for Christ, then paying attention to what's happening to people who are incarcerated is going to be a natural way for us to get proximate. It requires us to think about and advocate against, if we must, mistreatment of people who are incarcerated and to ensure that our positions of that from our positions of privilege. For example, young people who are being held are not being held without basic necessities, right? Because I think it's hard for someone to believe that they are made in the image of Christ and just as loved if they can't have a blanket or a toothbrush. It requires us to do our due diligence and try to find organizations that are working towards making sure that the humanity, right, and the godness of people is still being seen. To look for reputable charities, right, and annoy the crap out of our state and local officials who are doing our work right, within the government. To support alternatives to incarceration, right? I think New York City is on the right track, for those of you who may not know. They recently passed some legislation that's gonna take um, effect in 2020 that says, if you have a nonviolent misdemeanor, right, we're not gonna put bail on you because many times what happens is people are incarcerated not because of their wrongdoing, but because of their poverty, because they just can't afford to come out of prison, right? So thinking about things like that. Making informed decisions about public officials is going to be important. Russ was really clear in saying this is not about a platform, right? You're not creating this, God says we should do this. It's starting with God, right? Understanding how we are supposed to be and being a part of the restoration and the alignment of our spaces based on who we understand God to be and who we understand ourselves to be as followers of Christ. Um, I think asking what, and this is for the parents, because I know we have a lot of young people here, I hope Brooklyn, amen. Um, so find out what your school suspension and expulsion protocols are. How does it work? Who's being impacted by it, right? You can hold people to account, especially once you know that it's not, it's not um, done sort of fairly, right, based on population, then it's, 
there's nothing wrong with sort of saying to people, what's going on? How is it happening here? Thinking about and praying for kids who have an incarcerated parent, one in 14 children in America has at least one parent who's incarcerated. Safe Families for Children is a great organization if you want to impact that. And then getting involved with mentoring programs. I say all the time, I left the Bronx District Attorney's Office, right, after spending three years trying to realign this understanding of justice within the office through my own personal actions. I left because I recognized that if you don't start before people are in the system, sometimes it can be really hard to keep them out of the system, right? So being involved with mentoring programs that focus on preventing young people from entering the system and supporting their education. And then this literal sense of visiting the incarcerated, I stand by it. Um, my brother in Christ, Zach Martin, had an amazing event earlier this year called Locked in Solidarity. And um, there was a woman there who spoke and explained that she does a lot of work in women's prisons upstate. And she talked about the difference she saw in the number of people who went to visit women in prison versus the number of people who went to visit men in pr prison. And it was staggering. She basically said, no one visits women in prison. Now that might have been like, you know, but the point was she had gone to Rikers Island and seen the line that snakes around for people, you know, as people are waiting to get in and visit loved ones. And in her experience going upstate, that wasn't something that she saw. I think visiting the incarcerated is really important and, and having this sort of figurative and literal proximity is important because it says something crucial. It says that you believe that there's more for that person or those people. It says that they're not cast down or shamed into oblivion. It says, I want to be a part of your restoration. It says, as Brian Stevens put completely perfectly, that that person, like each of us, through God's grace, is more than the worst thing they've done. Could you imagine, without God's grace, we'd have every reason to be struck down instantly for a thought, let alone an action. And I think knowing who we are through Christ, through his grace, made in his image, and knowing that that doesn't apply just to us in this room, right? It applies to the people who are in detention centers at the border, who are in MDC, who are on Rikers Island. It applies to all of them. This idea that through God's grace, we are more than the worst thing we've ever done. And I think that's why we're called, right, when we think about the politics of Jesus, to think about how we go from retribution to restoration. Because we know that a person's bad day is not the end of the story. Because through Christ, our bad day is not the end of our story. And it's not a personal story. It's a universal story that everyone is called into. So in thinking about the ways that we can kind of get proximate with folks, I want to take a moment now to call up somebody who's doing some really, really, really amazing work here in New York City. His name is Danny Sinabria. I'm going to have him come up and speak to us really quickly about his organization and the work that he's doing. Could we give him a round of applause? Hey guys, how you guys doing? Good. I'm really blessed to be here. Uh, I just want to say something 
uh, that I go to church like five blocks from here uh, in Fifth Avenue, Brooklyn, been there for 37 years. And it's amazing just to see a, a beautiful family over here in this area uh, that I could have a church, a big family. Amen? Amen. And just in, in awe of that. Um, as she was sharing about this stuff, um, I've been in church all my life, born and raised. And I haven't really, for all those years, haven't heard about prison ministry or about incarceration. And what you guys are doing today is so powerful. Churches are not talking about this. And therefore, people are looking at it from a distance while we need to be up front in the front lines. Amen? I'm sorry, guys. I'm Pentecostal, so I got to hear amen. Okay, sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, is that cool? Okay, cool. <laughs> Don't say that. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm a, I, I work for Youth for Christ. It's a nonprofit organization. I'm an executive director here in New York City. And I've been involved in young people's life for 20 years. I'm a youth pastor for about 15 years. And talking about this incarceration, work, work with young people that are incarcerated, has touched my life, has broken my heart. Uh, I hope this message is breaking your heart. It's not about statistics or numbers like that but it's breaking your heart, and you want to do something about it. And I'm from Brooklyn, so for me, it's like, what are we going to do about it now? What's the next step, right? I know we're going to have a nice brunch, nice gathering, all that good stuff, but the reality is this. The real world is, what are you going to do about it? And so what we have as Youth for Christ is an opportunity that you can be involved in. There's 16,000 kids in New York City that get arrested every single year. 16,000. There are about 2,000 kids right now incarcerated or in parole right now in the system. And we have an opportunity that's an amazing opportunity. I work, I, I work closely with ACS, and they are in charge of the juvenile justice here in New York City. And once I'm at a meeting with them, and they say, hey, Danny, come over and talk to a director. And when I sat down in that meeting, almost every single director was there from around the city. And I just started the job. I had no idea what to say. And they're like, so what did you do? And I just share them what we do. We're mentoring young people that are incarcerated, sharing them the love of God. This is in New York City, guys. And they were like, when can you start? And I was like, uh, tomorrow. I came back. I was like, I don't know what to do. But they actually said, what do you have? What do you have that you could give? And I said, I have the body of Christ called the church. And that guy looked at me thinking I was crazy. When I say I have the body of Christ, it's the church that can make a difference, what you're doing. And he's like, when can you start? I said, and tomorrow. He goes, well, tomorrow you have a couple of meetings. Let's make this happen. That was two years ago. And now we're in Crossroads in Brooklyn and Horizon in the Bronx every single week, bringing mentors every week, walking with kids one-on-one, -on -one, hearing their story, learning from them, sharing our story, but the greatest thing is sharing God's story. And it's making a huge impact. And we're waiting for kids when they leave the facility, where they're going at, where they're living at, is the most important thing. Do you know that a kid that gets arrested in New York City, about 6 to 70% go back into prison? They just go right back into prison. It is a cycle. And so what we want to do is to stop the cycle. And we believe the only way to stop the cycle, yes, we got to change laws. Yes, we got to do all that stuff and get the right person into politics to make those differences. But I believe in the power of God. Amen. 
I believe that we have the power of God that we can change a kid's life by being consistent in that kid's life. So when a kid walks out and go back to the neighborhood, are we the church supporting that young person? We got four young people right now that just left, left out of the prison, and we're walking with them every single week. You know that if a kid has a mentor in their life, 75% chance they would not go back into prison if they have a mentor in their lives. We can do this. We can slow this down. We can stop the cycle. We could turn our city upside down. If we just make that, make that decision, am I going to visit someone in prison? Am I going to be obedient to Jesus' call? So if you want to be a part of this, let me know. Let's make this happen. I just met Pastor Russell years ago, but we had a meeting, and he, he called me up or emailed the next day and said, let's do this. And so we got to get things done. Amen? If you're from New York, you got to get things done. Amen? I want us to make this a difference. I want us to partner up uh, as one body, as one family. And I don't want to lie to the city that I have the kingdom of God behind me. Amen? I love you guys. Take care. Thank you, Danny. So I want to go ahead and invite the, the band back up as we get prepared to, to come to the table together. I want to kind of end um, by telling you a bit of a story about a young man that I work with. He's from the Bronx. His family immigrated from Guinea, West Africa. And he came in one day and he was just I could tell he was in a foul mood. He was just upset, you know, and I couldn't pinpoint it. And he, he usually comes in and he gives me elbow. That's what we do. We give each other bow. Um, but he like, he walked past my office. His face was kind of grimaced. And so when I caught him after he left the after school program, I said, I said, what's going on, Amadou? Like, what's going on? And he said to me, he said, I saved up my money and I bought myself some new AirPods and I brought them to school. And I was wearing them in school. And then I got a call into the principal's office. And the principal said to me, one of the teacher's AirPods got stolen. And we think you did it. And they took his AirPods from him. And so to give, he goes to Fordham Prep. I don't know if any of you know, but Fordham Prep is a private school in the Bronx. It's overwhelmingly white. And so I said to him, I said, well, was anybody else wearing AirPods? And he said, everybody has AirPods. And his heart was broken. I said, well, give me the name of the principal. Give me the administrator's name. I'll call. I'll talk to them. And he, you know what he said to me? He said, don't worry about it, miss. This happens all the time. He said, I'm grateful for legal outreach because without you guys, I'm pretty sure I would be in jail. Mass incarceration impacts people from a young, young age. And in that moment, as bad as I wanted to be able to fight for him, I was ready to call that school and speak to everybody from the top to the bottom and tell them how I felt about what happened to him, right? But all he wanted in that minute, the only thing he wanted was for me to tell him, I'm sorry that happened to you. And to sit beside him as he told me that story. I do believe that our call is bigger than that, but I think also our call is as simple as visiting someone who's in that circumstance, 
taking that pedestal from beneath ourselves and remembering we have a shared connectedness through the fact that we're all broken. I think that's the beauty of this table. As we get prepared to come and take communion, right? This is the great equalizer. Because here it doesn't matter if you sold drugs. It doesn't matter if you've been the victim of a horrendous crime. Because Jesus says to everybody in this moment, I'm here, it's free to you and you're forgiven. I see you and you're a part of my family. All I want as we think about mass incarceration and how it touches the lives of folks throughout the country and here in our own city and state is to remember that Christ is the reason that we can look at our incarcerated brother or sister and say, I see you, I feel your hurt. You're broken, I'm broken. But Christ is here for all of us. So as you get prepared to come to the table, if you would keep that in mind, I think that'd be important. So after each sermon and before we, before we partake, Russ always asks that we have three things, something personal, something social, and so something structural. Um, and for my personal one, I thought prayer is what we need individually. So as you think about mass incarceration and those who are in prison, I ask that you pray about that connected brokenness, those spaces where you have hurt people and where you've been hurt, and ask God to help you remove that pedestal if it's there. And I would argue that we all have it. In terms of social, we've been talking about Safe Families for Children and we won't stop talking about it because that organization is one of the great ways to get yourself proximate with folks who have been touched by mass incarceration. Having one of the income earning people in a family get incarcerated is one of the quickest ways to derail a family. Half an income gone in a city where sometimes it takes more than two for people to survive. Um, so connect with them. Again, there's a training today. So if you're interested, you should go. And then Danny came up and spoke about Youth for Christ. It's an amazing organization. They're doing great work with their ju juvenile justice ministry. And if you want more information, you should check out their website. I'm sure Danny will be around for a few minutes if you want to talk to him also. And then be a mentor. Be a mentor. We have connections with Safe Families, with Trellis through Zach Martin. Find a young person who needs that somebody who's going to sit and listen to them and walk with them and do that. And then last, structurally, if you don't know about mass incarceration, there's so many books, so many documentaries. Pick one up. But I would start with Just Mercy. It's an amazing book. Brian Stevenson does a great job of painting the picture of who these folks are behind bars and making sure that their story doesn't end at the worst thing that they've done because ours doesn't end there. So as you prepare to come to the table, keep in mind we always have two stations in the front and two stations in the back. Um, it's vegan, it's gluten-free. We tried to make it as easy as possible for everybody to be able to come and partake. You'll take the wafer, you'll dip it in the cup, and you can take it immediately or take it back to your seat and kind of think and pray. 
I think the most important thing for us to remember as we come up to communion is that it's open to everybody. Everybody. Won't you come? Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.